Have you ever worked with a software vendor who said their solution would save you fill in the blank? It's some dollar amount. Or how about that big data warehousing project where the lead consultant says this project could lead to more fill in the blank revenues? And if you accept either of these projects, have you ever tried to go back a year later to find out the actual cost savings you realize or the big revenue bumps upward? Our topic on this show is a book entitled Project Profitability by our guest, Reginald Lee. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Dr. Reginald Lee is a professor at Xavier University where he teaches business. I wanted to know how a mechanical engineer became interested in solving business problems for other organizations. Well, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so I was getting my PhD in engineering and I wanted my research work to demonstrate not only solving an engineering problem, but to be able to discuss the financial implications, the financial impact created by the improvement. And so as I started looking into the math of accounting during my studies, I realized that the math from an engineering perspective really didn't make much sense. And so once I finished my research work at the PhD, um, then I was fortunate and blessed enough to get a contract with Wiley to actually capture my research work and my first book. And that's the one that you and I talked about, which was explicit cost dynamics. And so that just kind of kicked off a career that went down this direction because what I found is that the math didn't make sense. But then when I started looking into the decisions people were making with the bad math, I got really concerned and thought, well, there's got to be a better way. And so I went down the path of starting to create the models, create the business models, the financial models, the mathematical models to be able to explain things differently than we uh, generally do with accounting tools. The bad math of accounting. I wanted to hear more. When I look at revenue, it can be revenue recognized, right? So from a cash perspective, first of all, to create context, I was a student of Goldratt. I was a, uh, was a Jonah. So for me, it's about cash, about making money. And so in, in that context, then when I look at the income statement, the first problem is the net revenue line at the top of the income statement. I can recognize revenue from a sale today as a part of the profit equation, even though I haven't been paid for it, and I can be paid for it sometime in the future. So revenue recognition really kind of violates this whole idea of having cash. The revenue that's recognized doesn't necessarily equal cash received. So there's a disconnect between money and revenue in the first line of the income statement. Then we start talking about costs. And so uh, let's take cost of goods sold. And so a company makes widgets and they say the cost of that widget is $5. So the first question I have is, so if that cost is money, who are you giving that $5 to every time you make a widget? Or if you don't make a widget, are you saving $5? Because if there's cash involved, there should be a cash transaction. And so the second problem is that $5 is determined by the costing technique that I use. 
if I use a different costing technique with a different set of assumptions or a different scope, I could come up with a different cost, let's say $4.50. Or another approach could come up with a cost of $6. And so the cost is not cash. It's a function of how I choose to calculate it. So that would suggest then that it really has nothing to do with money. It has to do with choices. And so now let's assume that revenue is money for, for the moment. And if costs are not money, then I'm subtracting to calculate my gross margin, I'm subtracting something that's not money from money. And so we learned in the second grade that we can't subtract apples and oranges or we can't add apples and oranges, but that's exactly what we're doing at the top of the income statement. So kind of summarizing, revenue may or may not be cash. Costs are not cash, right? Because they're something that's calculated. And then what makes it even worse is that when I consider matching, right? So let's say I sell you something Today, I ask you to pay me next month, okay, so I can recognize that revenue today, but it may be an item that I built out of inventory, let's say last year. So in matching, not only is it not a cash transaction, I'm bringing into the equation money that I spent last year in operations. So this, you know, the, the income statement itself, as sacred as it seems to be, mathematically at the beginning is extremely faulty. The big hook near the beginning of this book that lured me in was a cost savings boast by Oracle. So I did some digging. I I stopped reading and I did some searching and I found a quote by Larry Ellison in 2002. And here's the quote. In the very first year, Oracle put in Oracle's 11i application software. We've saved $1 billion. In year two, we'll save $2 billion and in year three, we'll save, guess, $3 billion. While doing all of this, we've cut out our IT budget in half. Does that sound familiar? How accurate, really, how accurate are these boasts? Yeah, having spent a good, a good period of my life in consulting, one thing I saw was that consultants promised more than they could deliver. And so I started looking into why. And part of that is through this notion of benefit inflation, which is where the where um, Oracle got their $2 billion from. So let's talk about that. So benefit inflation is basically this. So if I'm looking for savings, as I mentioned before, there are cash savings and there, there are non-cash savings. So a cash savings might be if I, if I pay, let's say, $5,000 a month to lease space, and I don't need to lease that space anymore because I'm using other space more efficiently. I don't have to spend $5,000 anymore. That's a cash savings. A non-cash savings would be, I've got a, a, a an executive who works for your company. They make $100,000 a year. I'm going to make them 10% more efficient. So we're going to save them $10,000. That's non-cash. And so what I see in many of these opportunities, improvement opportunities, um, whether it's IT, whether it's Six Sigma projects, sometimes even lean, is that they can identify a significant amount of savings by saying, you know what, you spend $10 million in labor. If we can make that $10 million in labor 10% more efficient, we'll save you a million dollars. And it seems like it's a big number. But after you implement the improvement program, if you're still paying the same people to be there, that $10 million is still there. It was a non-cash savings. And so what I found is that most of the time, when people are identifying the value proposition for what it is that they're selling, the biggest number that they can quantify are non-cash savings. 
And so if I can identify the labor savings, the time savings, if I can put a number on those things, it's generally non-cash because you have to ask yourself, am I spending this much less money as a result of the, as a direct result of the improvement? And I say direct result because software, for instance, can make us more efficient, but software can't fire people. So if we implement software and we have more efficient people running around the organization, then that's where the dollar value is coming from. But it's not necessarily a cash savings. And so what Oracle did was they talked about how people could do things more efficiently. They could sell things more effectively. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're saving that money. So a good 75% of that $2 billion, if I recall correctly, is was non-cash savings. And that's very dangerous because the number is so big and it looks so exciting to people that it causes them to say, well, if I can save, if you save $2 billion, of course, I'll spend $50 million on your software because the savings for me is going to be absolutely huge. But you got to ask, ask yourself, once you put the software software in, how is that going to, going to affect what you're spending as an organization? And if it doesn't change what you're spending as a, as, as, as a result of the implementation, it hasn't saved money from a cash perspective. It's made you more efficient, of course, but hasn't necessarily saved money. So one of the key premises in the book is number one, understanding the differences between cash savings and non-cash savings and how improvement projects generally create non-cash savings. But then also, and it's a, a, an exercise in saying, okay, so now that we've got this non-cash savings, our people are more efficient, we use space more effectively, materials more effectively, what can we do different reap cash benefits as a result of the improvement. So it's not just improve, Im implementing the software, but what does the software enable that allows us to spend differently so that we get the cash improvements? This is purely opinion. I'm not convinced software and business consultants are out to deceive and manipulate us. Instead, I just think they lack all the facts and that their own financial models are flawed as they unwisely make cash savings claims. Sure. And I, and I agree with you. No, I, I agree with you. I was uh, having um, breakfast with a C, C, uh, excuse me, CFO. Um, I guess it was last week and he had read project profitability and he kept saying multiple times, I love this book. I love this book. And he was telling me about how soft they at their at their organization, they have to go through a new ERP implementation. And he said that the salesperson kept telling him all the money that he's going to save as a result of implementing their software. And he said, no, I'm not. I have to do this. I'm, I'm not doing this to save money because I know that I'm still going to have the same infrastructure. We're still going to be doing the same thing. But for compliance purposes and other reasons, I have to do this. And what I'm finding is that as I expose people to this different type of thinking, and the basic thinking is this, that improvement projects will make capacity. So I mentioned before capacity is what we buy in anticipation of use. And so one of the interesting things about capacity is that the cost, the cash cost does not change with how we use it. So for instance, you know, if, if at my, at the university, I've got a salary. And that salary does not change with the number of students that I teach, the number of classes that I teach, unless I do overload. But for, for the most part, uh, within what's required of me, the number of classes that I teach, whether it's two or three, will not change as a function, uh, will not affect my salary, right? So 
what happens is technology can make me better at doing my job. And so when I'm better at doing my job, they're still paying me the same amount of money. I can just do more things or I can do the same things using less of my time. And so with these improvement projects, what you have is a situation where you're making your resources more efficient. That's all it is. So the true savings are in things such as the units in which you buy the the capacity. If I buy people in hours, I can reduce the number of hours it takes for them to do work, or I can get more in the same amount of hours. If I'm buying square feet, if I'm buying pounds of material, I get more out of it, or I can use it more efficiently. So in that context, my, my hypothesis is that there really are no cash savings from becoming more efficient. So in most of these projects, it's not about the cash that you save, it's about how operationally you become more efficient. And then if you can identify how that happens, then you can make managerial decisions to improve the infrastructure of your organization and how you use capacity. Reginald Lee introduces us to his favorite or one of his favorite writers, Peter Keene. And I'm glad he did because the section on process salience and project prioritization are new mental models we may want to start embracing as we evaluate new improvement initiatives or projects that can enhance capacity and throughput in our businesses. When you start thinking about which processes you're going to invest in, then which where where is that process in terms of strategic importance? And oftentimes, if we don't think about where the process is in terms of strategic importance, then we might invest in processes that have, let's say, less of an impact in terms of brand and less of an impact in terms of customer satisfaction um, and how we relate to our customers in the market. So we might find ourselves spending in areas that are much less strategically important to organizations. So I thought that Peter Keene in his book, The Process, did an excellent job. He's, he's the one that came up with that idea. right? And then the other is the type of project that we're actually buying. So what I've seen in the past, for instance, I've been a strategist before, um, and I've also been a consultant in the big four, um, is that when people buy information projects, right, help me understand what I should be doing. Should I be reducing costs? Um, you know, should I come up with a better way to, to, to handle my cost accounting? Should I go with, with uh, you know, lean? Whatever that issue is, bringing someone in and helping them, helping you understand what to do isn't necessarily going to save money, but I've seen people try to create Cash benefit, cash benefit analyses for these types of, of uh, investments, which doesn't make an awful lot of sense because it's not going to save you any money by doing that. Um, the same thing with if I know I've got a problem, I know that I need to reduce costs. Can you help me understand what I should do to to achieve that? What's the plan associated with achieving reduced cost? Uh, uh, reduced cost. Again, in that context, what you don't have, I mean, it's valuable information to help you understand what path you go down to to achieve reduced cost, but that doesn't necessarily save you money. Again, the money that's saved comes when you're actually implementing the improvements that you come that you've created the path for. And so, what this matrix does is it says, okay, let's take a look at the strategic salience or the process importance associated with the organization and strategy on one axis, the the, the horizontal. On the vertical axis, let's take a look at the the type of project it is. Is it providing us with information? Is it, is it instructing us down a path to, to realize the, the, the value? Or is it actually implementing 
the ideas and the path. And so if I can if I can place projects in that matrix, it helps us understand which projects should be which have which should have higher priority, which ones are going to be able to deliver cash value, and then we can start making better managerial decisions by being able to place all of our different projects on this matrix and see where they are and then make decisions regarding which ones we need to spend short term, long term, and medium term. At this point, I wanted some clarification. In the book, we learned that informational and or instructional centric projects can lead to faster cash benefits than say implementation centric projects. When I lay it out generically, it suggests that we should focus on implementation projects that are the most salient. Right. And we see that in the, in the matrix if one were to look at the matrix. However, if I've got a project that's going to take 18 months to start realizing value and we're in the second month of implementation, I may find that there's a different project that's not as strategically salient, but I can get the cash value in, let's say, six months. And so by factoring in the timing, you're absolutely right. I may choose to go with that project and implement it, even though it's not an implementation project, primarily because it can get through implementation faster than some of the other projects that may be bigger or take longer to implement. If you've been listening to the show a lot, you know I love the game of baseball. And that metaphor extends to the way I even look at business. There are on-field and off-field activities. And then we have the front office in the back office, and the activities done there. My favorite business coach you probably know is Dan Sullivan. He uses the term front stage, backstage as a business metaphor. Well, Reginald uses a similar construct when describing projects, such as identity, priority, background, and mandated processes. Now, I like the way he does that because SLTs, senior leadership teams, can now start categorizing their projects, which could lead to maybe better project priorities. You know, for instance, I'm talking to a firm right now and they're trying to, they're, they're kind of thinking, well, we need help with, with, with our cost management. Where should we focus? And one of the first things is to start thinking through, all right, so what are our identity processes? And I, I know what they are. And so having them go through that pro- that process helps us figure out this is where we should probably be focusing our effort. Because in this particular element of how they work, it's very, very clear that that's where they should be focusing on. Um, I've been told them that yet because we haven't got to that point in the conversation. But it just makes perfect sense that for where they are, if we can start breaking these processes down into information excuse me, into um, the identity, which is how the market sees the company. Priority, those processes that support your identity. And then the mandated ones are those that you have to do government or client-wise. You know, if we understand those very clearly, then it helps, it, it helps us make better decisions because we know that this is a process that affects our identity, the market, affects how they or why they buy from us. So that's where we need to focus our efforts. My next question I had during our phone call had to do with capacity maps. Now, granted, that would be a better question for video, but still, I wanted Reginald to explain capacity maps, which is addressed in this book. Well, let me, let me, let me take a step back because I want to create context. So in my book, Strategic Cost Transformation, what I've done is I've broken organizations down into what I call two domains. The first is the operations and cash domain. So that's where we 
spend money buying our capacity. That's where we make decisions as leaders on how to use the capacity, whether it's production-related capacity, accounting, HR, sales, marketing, all the different areas. All of that is done business-wise in the operations and cash domain. And it exists regardless of how we choose to account for it, okay? And then there's the accounting domain. So that's where I look to describe what happens in the operations and cash domain by transforming the data into what we have in accounting, what we use for our income statements, for our balance sheets, cash statements, and any other accounting statements that we should be using for, uh, in my opinion, re reporting only and not for decision-making, okay? So with the operations and cash domain, the key element is capacity because that's what we as organizations spend most of our money on. It's the people that we have, the space that we buy, the materials that we use, the equipment that we use, and the technology that we that we use, right? So for most organizations, that's where they spend money. So with the tools that I use, I want to understand that when I buy capacity, there's cash associated with it, right? So that's the cash cost. So I want to understand what I spent so I can get my cash elements. I can understand the cash impact of it. Then I want to understand how much I have. So let's say, for instance, I've got an individual who I, I pay you know, $800 for a day. I chose 800 because it's a uh, you know, round number, right? So if I pay $800, that doesn't mean that um, every hour cost me $100. No, it's $800 to have that person for a day. So that capacity that I bought, bought, cost me $800. Now, the second step is how I consume it. So how much of that eight hours that I bought did I consume? And then based on that, how much output did I create? Whatever the output is, it could be widgets, it could be reports, it could be meetings. And so I've got what I call the buy, consume, create framework. How much capacity that I buy in terms of the units of consumption? It could be pounds. It could be hours. It could be square feet. What did I pay for it? So that now I've got direct ties to cash. Now I can start taking a look at operationally how well I used it. How much of it did I consume to create the output? So a capacity map helps us map the use of the different types of capacity that we buy. How much did I buy? How much of it did I use? And then what's the output that it, that's created? And when you do it properly, you match the output created to the demand to see if I over underproduced or if I produced the, exactly the amount of demand that's necessary. So the importance of capacity mapping, and, and you're absolutely right, it's, it's better when you can see it. The importance is for us with organizations, like for instance, excuse me, when you start thinking about the improvement projects, from a bi uh, capacity mapping perspective, I can become more efficient. So let's say that I create 50 widgets and it took me seven hours to create the 50 widgets. So either A, I can create those 50 widgets in fewer hours. So now the benefit is I bought, let's say eight hours and now I've got two versus three hours because it not only requires six hours to create the 50 widgets versus seven. So that's an improvement, right? The other is I could still use those seven hours and create more widgets. So if there's more demand for the widgets and I create more, then I can create more widgets with the same seven hours. So I haven't saved any time. What I have done is I've been able to create more output. Where this is really key is this. When you map what happens as a result of an improvement project, what you'll see is that either what you buy doesn't change, but how you consume it and what it creates does change. So the capacity maps show you very clearly how, A, improvement projects can make 
the capacity that you use more efficient, but then it also shows B that if I'm still buying the same amount of capacity, the amount of money I'm spending and therefore the cash that's spent remains the same. And so I use capacity maps to help us understand things like this is what your current state looks like. Then if we make these changes, either through lean, through software or whatever it is, this is what your organization will look like as a result of the change. Now, this gives us the opportunity to buy, for instance, less capacity. So if I can produce my widgets in six hours versus seven, maybe I only buy seven hours versus eight. That's where the cash savings comes from. And so it becomes very clear to us when we use capacity maps what's truly going on when we actually try to improve our organization through uh, these improvement projects. Let's say you are having coffee with Reginald Lee and you ask him the question, what is the difference between variance and variation? What is the answer? I think it really depends on the context, you know, Um because one of the guys, one of my my mentors, was very good. You know, we were we were talking about uh, what used to be termed control charts, right? I grew up with them as control charts, and and one of the things Saul used to talk about is that there's natural variation in production. It's going to happen, and that's what we understand about the the, the statistics of, of producing or really anything, right? There's always going to be variation. And so one of his big issues was if you're costing something that is you're costing a product that's actually in a process that's in control and you're going to have a variation, don't focus on counting the variances there. Because his, his concern was when you calculate variances for products that are created in a process that's in control, you're going to create this need to try to change the process to improve it. Does that make sense? It's like playing whack-a-mole. Yes, absolutely. And his concern was that we get so wrapped around the axle trying to, to, to calculate accounting variances for a process where there's natural variation that it really doesn't make any sense. It's not really, you know, in, in a sense, the variation is going to cancel out anyway, right? If I've got a, a process that's truly in control, then I would hope that the variance, the vari- the variation on both sides of, of the, the process mean are going to balance each other out. So we shouldn't worry about that. So in the context of production, for example, uh, I would tend to lead towards towards Saul. Um, now, in, in the context of the book, I do talk about variance, and I talk about variance in terms of the improvement project. So what happens is this. When I make an improvement project and I use capacity maps, what I should be able to do with a decent level of, of, of confidence, I should be able to describe how the improvement project is going to change the use of capacity. Now, with that, I've got to make management decisions such as, do I buy less capacity? Do I create more output? And I should be able to put my arms around how much is going to be spent if I buy less capacity or how much I save if I buy less capacity or if I can, how much I can receive if I sell more output, right? So I use that from a cash perspective and using capacity maps as a basis to be able to project out what the cash improvements of the project will be. And, and the steps that are necessary to achieve that. So I can project out what I think the improvements are going to be. Now, you got the projection at the beginning of the project to use the cost-benefit analysis. Then you actually go through the implementation. And so with the implementation, what I'm going to have is I'm going to have a variance between what I thought should be the savings and what are actually the savings. 
So that's going to be just an absolute number where I say, okay, I thought I was going to save a million dollars and I've only saved 800,000. So there's a variance there mathematically that does exist. Now we ask ourselves, why does that exist? And now we get into variation. I could have, for instance, not executed some of the management steps that we agreed needed to be executed. And we get, and as a result of that, we only got 800,000 out of the expected million. Or what we could find is that we were either faster or slower in terms of spending money or receiving the money or receiving the savings. And so I say that they actually aren't in opposition to each other, but one explains the other in many cases. The variation could explain the variance between what the projected savings were and what the actual savings were. Project profitability, it's not Reginald's only book. So if you buy and like this book, which titles do you read next on his shelf? I, I, that the answer was actually really easy. And I would say strategic cost transformation. And I say that because strategic cost transformation, the value in that book alone, in terms of how you can see your organization and how you see things like cost savings, how you see things like capacity, the effect it has on cash, the difference between cash numbers and accounting numbers, and where the accounting numbers comes from. To me, that there's just significant value in that book because of perception that you can create as a result of reading the book. So I would say that one. However, for the curious, um, like for me, for instance, I was talking to my students about this yesterday. Um, the book that I use the most is probably Explicit Cost Dynamics because it's got the math foundation. That's the first book that came out of my PhD research. That's the book that's got, that book to me has the best information, but it's by far the worst written. I mean, I just did not know how to write back then. I wrote like a pure engineer. I was young and I and an engineer and I use that one a lot. Um, I think the most researched book was my Essentials of Capacity Management book. People around the world, researchers, non-researchers have used that book. Um, So that's probably my most popular book worldwide. But for me, the best book for people to really get their arms around their business and have a different perspective would be Strategic Cost Transformation. I've been working in the consulting space for the past 20 years, and I love it. So when I meet with a fellow consultant, I always want to hear a success story or two. My favorite project was for a relatively small nonprofit publishing company. And if take a step back. So in all my work, my, I guarantee that companies are going to make more money. That's a guarantee. And if they don't make more money, then they don't pay. So my focus on these types of projects is on improving the money that they make. By changing, and what what I'm not talking about is working uh, working capital, right? I'm not trying to focus on receivables and payables. I'm talking about the use the use of capacity. How much am I spending on capacity? How much am I generating in revenue? Does that make sense? And how do I improve that, right? And so, for this particular publishing company, um, they were heading heading towards the edge of a cliff. Uh, basically. You know, from an accounting perspective, everything that they sold was profitable. But from a cash perspective, you could see that what they were spending to be in business was basically greater than what they were bringing in. And so by looking at the accounting numbers, they were missing that. They were miss, They were missing that important piece of data. So by shifting over to cash, we were able to explain it fairly clearly. And I remember sitting in the COO's office one day 
And who's he's a, CF, a CPA, and he said, how did we miss it? How did we miss this? And I said, because we're focusing on accounting data. And when we focus on accounting data, there's a lot, a lot that's lost when it comes to cash. So to me, helping them, and they're still surviving today, um, this is several years ago, um, helping them uh, was was just awesome. I developed a lot of, of long-term friendships coming out of that project from having worked with them and helping them see a, a, a different approach. Um, that was that was probably my, my favorite project because of the people I worked with, because of the importance of making sure that the organization continued moving forward. Um, it just it just meant a lot to me. I ask every guest about their favorite books. Here are some of Reginald's favorites. And I'm going to give you one that you'll, you'll laugh at. Um, you know, first of all, there are two. The first one was, was The Goal. Um, as a professor, that's the book that when, when people are looking for extra credit, I always defer to The Goal. Just such a fantastic book that it's so simply, it's, it's so simply the way it's, the, the way that the story goes so simply just kind of shifts your mindset. I can't get the words, but it's just it, it just it was incredible to me. And when I have students read it, it's, they get the same response. So the goal, um, the other one, pure business book that I, I go to a lot is Switch. And to me, I think what's most important is, you know, when we talk about change management, the importance of the path. And so that's always, you know, when I talk about improvements, whether I'm dealing with clients or talking about students, when we talk about, you know, I can have that emotional need to change. I can have a logical need to change. But if I don't know how to change, if I don't have the instructions or a path to get to the change, then the change is going to fail. So I rely on that book an awful lot. Um, so those are probably the two business books that I've that have impacted me the most off the, off the top of my head. Now, there are two other books, believe it or not. Um, so one is uh, Brian Greene's book on um, string theory. And one of the things I do an awful lot of, especially with the engineering and scientific background, is I, I look to science to understand things that are outside of business and then say, how does this relate to business? And so when I start thinking about cost modeling, for example, one of the things they talk about in string theory is that although we live in a three-dimensional physical world, that strings can end up when, with basically in dimensions. I, you know, it's been years since I read it, but um, the whole idea that our perception is that we've got a three-dimensional world where there could be physical items that deal with, for instance, 12 or 13 dimensions. So it's like, okay, so what that did for me is that broke me out of this idea of the way we model costs is we think about them primarily in two dimensions and we collapse all these different numbers, overhead, direct labor uh, materials into two dimensions and plot it on a scale. And my thought was, why do we have to limit it to two dimensions? Maybe if we have multiple dimensions, we might be able to model this stuff more effectively. So that helped my early modeling and being able to say, I don't have to be stuck in what we have, the two dimensions that they've given us in the traditional two-dimensional cost plots. I can have as many dimensions as I want, and now I end up with cost surfaces rather than cost lines, which which really transformed my thinking. The other one that's along the lines was um, in graduate school, I took a significant number of maths, math classes with the um, with the graduate math students because I'd kind of run out of engineering courses to take. And so one of the classes was in Fourier series. And again, it dealt with modeling and in-dimensional vector spaces. So both of those completely changed my math modeling for cost and understanding cost and capacity to the point where I can model things that accounting can't see 
mathematically because it's all hidden. It's all hidden and trying to collapse all these different dimensions of cost into one line. And so because they can't see it, then they can't model it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. The name of the book is Project Profitability. The author is Reginald Lee. Thank you very much for being on the show. In the next few weeks, part of our summertime lineup includes a conversation with the first fiction writer we've ever have had on the show, Rob Hart. He's the author of the dystopian novel, The Warehouse, and that interview will be released in a few weeks. One of my favorite books in 2022 is about the real reasons Blockbuster failed. And we'll be talking to the last Blockbuster franchisee who was also featured on the Netflix documentary, about Blockbuster that was released two or three years ago. And I cannot wait to release that show with Alan Payne. I'm betting you've read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And I've found one of the top negotiating experts in this field. His name is Jim Ryman, and his book is Negotiation Simplified. That show also coming up in a few weeks. These shows and more are around the corner here on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy, and thank you for listening.